Good morning. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm a regular attender here and uh, for educationally. Uh, a special welcome to those of you who are our, our guests this morning and, and visiting. Um, what we're going to do now is have a look at those parts of the Bible that were read. Um, one moment. So many items, objects on this thing. God, God's spoken to us uh, in the Bible, and what we do each week basically is, is go through it and see what uh, we're, we learn and how we're supposed to respond uh, to what is, is, is taught in this part of the Bible. So that's what we're going to be doing in the next little while. Um, of course, Friday is Good Friday. We're celebrating Easter in the coming week. Um, and so um, we're looking at the events uh, in the life of Jesus leading up to uh, the events of Easter, um, Good Friday, uh, the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection on the Sunday. Um, and perhaps you uh, believe those things, perhaps you don't. I hope you'll consider them with me. I think they're very important. Um, they're very dear to me. I, I believe them. Um, and I, 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 I think it's important enough that you ought to believe it too. Um, would you join me in and pray as we uh, have a look at this part of the Bible together? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the Bible. We pray now that you'd help us to be attentive to what uh, Jesus is on about here and uh, we understand how we're supposed to respond and would respond uh, to your son the right way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find it super helpful to have a Bible in front of you because I'll, I'll give you the page numbers and stuff as we as we go through. So if there's a Bible sitting around, um, grab a hold of it and have a look. You'll, you'll find that helpful. Um, let's see if this thing works. Excellent. What's on the screen there, um, that's the Mount of Olives today, um, where a whole lot of the action that just we just read about in the Bible reading happened. Uh, doesn't have a whole lot of olive trees on it today. Uh, it's got 150,000 graves on it instead. Uh, it had olive trees on it in Jesus' day. Um, the reason it's got all the graves is because um, Jewish people think that's where the Messiah will return first, and so if you're buried there, you'll presumably rise from the dead first and other things. But it's very important to the life of Jesus. So when in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's uh, praying to his father, it's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's probably where he ascended into heaven from, um, and it's where he gave that big speech in, in, in chapter 21 that we just heard. Um, if you were there in uh, the year 70 AD, you would have seen a bunch of Roman siege engines on it, a bunch of, uh, I suppose, Roman generals and that kind of thing, um, actually directing the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Um, terrible things happened there. But we're going to go back 40 years before that. Um, I want us to imagine we were on the Mount of Olives on March 29, 33 AD. Um, if you were there on March 29, 33 AD, uh, you would have seen some pretty remarkable things. Uh, you would have heard it first, actually. Uh, first thing you would have heard is a crowd singing Israelite victory songs. Um, you'd hear them come around the mountain there on the, 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 the mountain road, and then you'd see them. And as they got closely, you'd see at the centre of this crowd singing their Israelite victory songs was this religious teacher, this Jewish carpenter turned religious teacher. Um, he's riding on a donkey. And they're all singing victory songs like he's a great king of Israel, arrived home at, at Jerusalem, the, the city of the great king. And he's just beaten all their enemies and defeated them and that kind of thing. And he's royalty. And they're spreading cloaks on the road in front of him for him to ride over and they're treating him like royalty. Now, no Jewish person there, no Israelite, could have failed to understand what was going on because they knew those songs and they knew what it symbolised when you see a rider on a donkey like that being praised by a crowd. Um, it was in uh, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. I was on the screen a second ago. 
This is what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion's the hill that Jerusalem's on. Um, Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, that's the king, um, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river, the river to the ends of the earth. This crowd thinks that this guy on the donkey is that king as prophesied in the Old Testament. He's come to bring peace to the world. He's, his destiny is to rule all nations forever. He's the promised Messiah, the King of Israel, and they're very excited because not only is the promised Messiah the King of Israel, but he's arriving today in Jerusalem to receive his crown and presumably from there to rule forever. Let me explain to you uh, the way uh, the Old Testament teaches us to understand history. There's basically two eras to history in the way the Old Testament teaches it. Um, on the one side, you've got the present evil age. You've got the age that we live in. Uh, where there's sin, there's disease, there's death, there's evil, there's terrible things that go on in the world. And I don't have to prove that to you, it's pretty obvious, right? But there's this point in history, they believe, this line, after which will be the age to come, the kingdom of God, when disease, death, evil will be vanquished forever and God's people will live in God's kingdom forever. And God will intervene at some point, change it from one thing to the other. And right at the centre of God's plan, changing one thing to the other, is this character called the Messiah, the King of Israel. Not just any Messiah, because every King of Israel is called the Messiah. It was Messiah David back in his day, but the Messiah, the Great One, the Great King of Israel who's coming, who will make that happen. And they think Jesus is that guy, and he is that guy. And so everybody's imagination on this day as he arrives to Jerusalem on this donkey is just dripping with anticipation and expectation and what's going to happen now the king's come to take his throne. But things didn't happen the way you might expect from what I told you. Um, I want us to focus on the responses of three different groups of people to this um, really enormous day in the life of Israel, the most, what should be the most important day in their history. Three different uh, groups of people. First, the Israelite leaders. Um, if you've got your Bible there, page 1018, um, and um, it's chapter 19, verse 39. And these Pharisee characters they're talking about are just Jewish religious teachers, fairly important people. Um, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they're carrying on like you, this king that's going to come and bring the kingdom of God. He says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's like, if they didn't realise it and cry it out, creation itself would start shouting in their place. Because it's really obvious at this point that Jesus is that king. Why is it obvious? Well, he's been preaching for three years about the kingdom of God and he didn't just talk about the kingdom of God, he demonstrated its power. He did miracles. He brought life to people. He fed crowds with very little food for thousands of people with few fish, few bits of bread. He did these incredible life-giving miracles showing that his ministry was the ministry of the age to come. And yet Israel's leaders have rejected him, which seems crazy because they had their Bible and they believed this Messiah was to come and they they just rejected Jesus even though he filled out all the criteria. Here's why they rejected him. It wasn't because they weren't educated about Jesus. People don't reject Jesus because of lack of education. Um, They rejected him because they were stubborn. 
because they had hard hearts, because they were sinful. They weren't inclined to follow Jesus. I used to be a high school teacher. Here's the hardest thing with a high school teacher. You call up a parent and you say, your son's doing this, this and this in class and it's really disruptive and terrible. And the parent goes, no, nah, my son's perfect. I, that can't be the case. I don't believe you. What do you say to that? See, I can lay out the facts in front of them, but that parent isn't inclined to believe because they just don't want to, because their preconceived ideas and their sense of satisfaction in their child is such that they don't want to believe that, even if I lay out all the facts in front of them. And you can give some really ridiculous examples of people holding on to what they want to believe, even when all the evidence contrary to it's right in front of their faces. That's what the Israelite leaders were doing. Jesus was obviously that king, but they rejected him. And it's worth considering that's the same reason people reject Jesus when they hear the gospel today. I find it extraordinary when I speak to people and I say, Jesus claims that he gets people eternal life and can, can make them by his death and resurrection enter the kingdom of God. And they say, I don't want to even think about it. I don't want to consider it. So I have reasons for thinking it's true. I can talk to you about it. I don't want him to think about it. It's just, it doesn't make sense. If you win the lottery, you check out whether the people claiming you won the lottery are on the level before you reject it. They rejected him because they just didn't want to believe. That's the Israelite leaders. Jesus' followers, the second ones, the people throwing in their coats, singing Israelite victory songs. They're thinking, wow, this guy's the Christ. He's come to save people. He's going to restore Israel's power. He's going to lead a rebellion. Who knows what they were thinking? But they didn't get it. Jesus had spent his whole journey to Jerusalem trying to tell them what the Christ was about and what his plan was, and they just didn't want to hear it because, like the Pharisees, they had some different preconceived notions they wouldn't let go of. Let me tell you about um, what what, uh, Jesus' title was. Now, back in chapter 9, one of Jesus' followers, Peter, uh, he asked them, uh, who do you guys say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. You're that guy. You're giving, doing miracles, all this stuff. We know you're the Christ. And so he says, you're right. I'm that king. But he starts, uh, what's the word, uh, translating his, his role. He starts adding to it and explaining it means something different to what you think it'll mean. He starts explaining that the role of the king, the great king, is the role of the suffering servants. In the Old Testament, and they hadn't added this up themselves. In the book of Isaiah, there's this suffering servant character who will die for the sins of his people. And Jesus is saying the way the king of the kingdom of God gets people into his kingdom is he dies for their sins so they can enter into his kingdom. They don't want to hear about that. They don't get it. But he also adds something else to it as well. He says he's the son of man. Um, son of man is Jesus' favourite title for himself. It, it's, it's really um, a strange title. There's this book in the Old Testament called the Book of Daniel. In chapter 7, um, there's this vision this prophet has, Daniel has, um, of this guy who looks like a son of man, it just means an ordinary-looking bloke, um, who walks into heaven and God says, you're in charge of everything forever. All of history, all of creation, forever. You're in charge of my kingdom. That's your destiny. And everybody reading their Bibles going, who is this human being who walks into God's presence and gets to be in charge of everything forever? Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now, these things get tied together. It's really important. Jesus is the King of the Kingdom of God. He will rule God's people forever. How's he going to do it? Well, he dies for their sins on the cross so they can go free from sin and death and be part of his kingdom. How can he be the Son of Man if he's dead? Well, because he's going to conquer death and rise from the dead and then into heaven and be the Son of God, the, the ruler forever. 
Jesus has explained this to them over and over again. If you've got your Bible there, flick back to chapter 9 of, of, of that passage, of that, the, the book of Luke, and it's on page um, 1004. It's helpful to hear what I'm talking about from Jesus' own lips, I think. Um, chapter 9, verse 20. Jesus says, What about you, he asked? Who do, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You're the Christ of God. He's, he's worked it out. Jesus strictly wouldn't tell this to anyone. And then he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things. See, immediately, Christ, Son of Man, suffering. He's got those three things wrapped up together. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the oldest chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Come down to chapter um, 43, verse 43, sorry, just on the other page, and he tries again. While everybody was marvelling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Come forward to chapter 18. He keeps trying. He's telling them pretty clearly what his plan is. Chapter 18, verse uh, 31, page 1017. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. It's clear that they're arriving at Jerusalem absolutely clueless as to what's really going on. Jesus' idea of what's happening when he gets there isn't that he's just going to go and pick up a crown. His crown will be a crown of thorns because he's the suffering servant dying for the sins of the world to win people into his kingdom. And a few short days later, those disciples, his close friends, would actually flee their master's side as the Romans came and arrested him. So that's the Israelite leaders and his close disciples, and they haven't figured it out. It's not so amazing as it looks. But what about the crowd? There's this crowd of people singing victory songs about Jesus. He's the great king. In a few days' time after this, a very similar crowd of ordinary Jerusalemites <laughs> would be chanting something else. Crucify him. Crucify him. The king of the kingdom of God on that day entered Jerusalem born by a donkey. A few days later, he would be expelled from Jerusalem bearing a cross. The crowds don't get it. There's the leaders, there's the disciples, there's the crowd. What's Jesus' reaction? Well, if you were there on that day as they rounded the, the Mount of Olives there on the donkey and he saw Jerusalem, you would see Jesus amidst all the praises and the, everybody's excited, you would see Jesus break down and weep. He wept over the city that was in front of him because he'd come and told them that he was the desire of the kingdom of God, bringing God's kingdom, and by and large, people rejected him. Why is he crying that they rejected him? Is he just self-centred? No, because he knows what's at stake, because he's the judge, because he's the only way people can enter into his kingdom and people won't even consider him weeps over his city for so many of them would not even consider 
that he was the saviour. Jesus is either your saviour or your judge, folks. He's either your saviour or your judge. Make sure you figure out where you stand with him. Jesus' angle as they approached Jerusalem looked something like that, except, you know, it wasn't today. It was then, and the temple was there instead of the Dome of the Mount, and as I said, there were less graves and more olive trees. Um, but it was something like that as they approached Jerusalem. Matt, but you see the size of this thing. That's the temple, the big thing. <laughs> it's the size of 20 football fields, right? It was a wonder of the world. The, the Israelites were very, very proud of it. Um, they thought it was amazing. Um, Jesus thought it was very important, but for different reasons. You see, it was the symbol of the fact that Israel had a true relationship with the God who made the world, and their job was to introduce the world to that God. That was their job, and they did a very, very bad job of it, the job of the Messiah is to make sure Israel lives by God's law. First thing he does when he turns up in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, finds out there have been a bunch of thieves there, and tosses them out because they just aren't doing their jobs and they'd actually rejected their king. Over the next few days, um, the Jewish leaders tried to challenge Jesus in a bunch of ways. Um, I'm going to, um, well, that's just a scale model of the, what the thing looked like. It's some very ambitious Englishman made that. Um, over the next three days, Jesus was challenged in a bunch of ways by those leaders, saying, who do you think you are? Who gave you authority to do these things? And I just want to focus on one of those episodes as, um, as they try and trap him, the second one. Um, it's fairly famous. If you come to chapter 20 and look at verse uh, 21, they send, um, they send some guys to try and trap Jesus and make him seem really bad in front of the crowds. Chapter 20, verse 21. So the spies questioned him these guys who were coming in and trying to trick Jesus. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. A lot of flattery there and you know we, we admire you're a straight talker. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? As the ultimate political trap. Here's why it's a trap. If he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, the Romans can come and arrest him. It's insurrection. If he says... To these Israelites, pay taxes, pay taxes to Caesar, then what he's really saying, what they'll probably hear is, be Rome's doormat, and the crowds won't like him anymore. It's a, it's a wonderful trap. And Jesus sees what's going on, and his answer is absolutely brilliant. Have a look at verse 25. Uh, 24, sorry. Uh, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, a coin, whose portrait's on it, and whose inscription is it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. Here's why it's a genius response. You see that funny little gold, that, that little coin you've got? Whose picture's on that? Oh, Caesar. Okay, well, it must be his property then. Make sure you give, the thing's got his image on it. Give it to Caesar. What's got God's image on it? They knew their Bibles. Genesis 1.26. God made human beings in his image. Make sure you give to God what's in his image. Give Caesar what's in his image. Give me a silly coin. Give to God what's in his image. You owe God you, is what he's saying. And he's absolutely right. God made us to live in loving obedience to him. Puts everybody in their place. But they fall silent and they give up. They can't get rid of this guy and so they plot to kill him. 
What I'm going to do now is get to uh, chapter 21, which is the hard bit. The bit that you're going, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Because they come out, they go back up the Mount of Olives, which is that mountain in the background there. They're looking over this wonderful temple and the disciples are asking about the end times. How's the world going to end? That, that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a really controversial, difficult topic. Um, you'll notice that um, this is the topic that all the cults get obsessed with and that's why they become cults. Um, have a look at chapter uh, 21, verses 5 to 7, and we'll, we'll see what Jesus says about it. Um, some of the disciples were remarking, they're on the Mount of Olives, about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and were gifts dedicated to God. They're looking at this wonder of the world, saying that's pretty remarkably amazing. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. See, he brings up two topics. People want to talk to you about end times teaching. Watch out is the first thing he says. Uh, not that the topic's bad, but there's a lot of false teachers who, who, who obsess with that stuff. And particularly two topics. They get Jesus wrong saying, I'm he, and they get the times wrong. They, they, they're obsessed with end time stuff. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are obsessed with Jesus and end times and the topics that they get wrong. Those are the two topics they get the most wrong. Um, this is the kind of thing Jesus is warning us about. But what's this big long speech about? Jesus is warning them about the end of the temple, which would happen in 40 years. But he's also talking about some things that are much more important mixed into it. Um, I'm going to give you some very theoretical difficult bits here for you to wrestle over. I want to make two sort of, you might say they're scholarly points, not really. Um, the points that I think will help you understand this chapter better if you want to go and read it later. Um, just Here they are. Two big points in end times teaching and how to understand it. It works for any, of, any other passages in the Bible that are like this as well. Prophesied end time events are often symbols or echoes of greater events that follow. For example, um, in the book of Isaiah, they're always talking about the, the, God's judgment on Babylon. Um, but it actually doesn't just stand for the God's judgment on Babylon. It's about the judgment of God on the whole world for their sin uh, and a warning that people need to repent and turn to him. So it's like it's representative. Babylon represents um, the whole world. Um, so that's, that's one thing to realise. The second one we're going to spend a bit more time on today. Um, End-time events often involve prophetic perspective, which isn't as scary as it sounds, um, which means seeing several future events as though they all happened at the same time. It's, a, it's perspective. Where the prophets look forward in the future, God tells them what's in the future, and the way they see it is a particular way. I want you to imagine I've got like a scope that I'm seeing through, all the things I'm looking at are at different distances away from me, but they kind of look flat to me. They all look like they're happening at the same time. They're painting a big flat picture of the future and you can't really tell how far apart things are that are, that are in front of you. It's a big flat image. And so if you read the book of Isaiah, there's lots of saying, in the last days this will happen, this will happen, in those days this will happen. And some of it's stuff that's happened. It's talking about when Jesus came to die for our sins. Some of it's talking about when God brings a new creation at the end of the world. Some's talking about Jesus, the suffering servant. And it all says it all sounds like it happens at the same time. Um, I'll, sh I'll show you what I'm talking about. Um, th this will help. Uh, that's Cradle Mountain in Tasmania. I went to bushwalk there a long time ago, but that's Google's image. Um, on the right, there's a mountain there called Barn Bluff. 
Um, if you climb up to Cradle Mountain, which is what we did, and you look at Barn Bluff, and you see another mountain behind it called Mount Ossa, and you look at Barn Bluff, and you know you're going to pass that in an hour's walk, um, and you see Mount Ossa behind it, and you go, that looks like it's not far beyond it, right? So what, you see something like that. Um, the fact is that it'll take you uh, three hours to get to Barn Bluff and three days to get up to Mount Ossa. But from where you're standing, it's a big flat picture. It's a, big, it's a flat perspective, right? I just see two mountains, and they don't look like that far, that far apart. Here's what uh, Luke 21, Jesus' speech, paints, if you can tolerate my drawings. Right in the centre of it is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus is warning them about that so they can escape and tell the world about him. But around it, there's other things. The persecution of Jesus' disciples, which we read in the book of Acts. Jesus prophesies about it here. But things that are much further in the future, there's hints of Jesus' death on the cross, which is about to happen, but also the future judgment, the end of the world, that sort of thing. But it all sounds big and flat here. Let me space it out from the side for you. Come to verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 12, and you'll hear about the uh, time of persecution that's about to happen to the disciples. It says, before all this, um, before the temple gets destroyed, They'll lay hands on you, the disciples, and persecute you. They'll deliver you out of synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. They'll get the news of Jesus out about his death and resurrection. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how do you defend yourselves. So it says he'll, he'll help them to uh, speak the truth to them, basically. And that's what happened. Um, there was a time of persecution, you can read about in the book of Acts, uh, and the disciples, by God's Holy Spirit, were able to speak clearly about Jesus and all he'd done, even to these rulers who want to kill them. In 70, though, the main thing this is about, um, the Romans turned up and absolutely brutalised Jerusalem. They, they destroyed it. One stone, not on another. That's not an exaggeration. They destroyed it. Um, it was very important that Jesus warned them, them about that here. Have a look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. But let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those uh, in the city get out, and those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfilment of all that's been written. The reason it was important for Jesus to prophesy that to them is so that they could escape, which is what they did, and speak the good news of Jesus and spread to the world. That's why we're here now. That's why I'm telling you about Jesus now is because the disciples fled Jerusalem and told the world about what Jesus had done. Watch out, flee. It's what they did. You also hear some more sort of vague stuff. It's just sort of last, like verse 10. It's all mixed. It's all flat picture, right? It sounds like it's all at the same time. Then he said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. It's just, the world will be bad. <laughs> there will be difficult times before the end. It's the pattern of the last days. But then eventually, Jesus will return, verse 27. At that time, they'll see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to bring his people into his kingdom. We've actually missed, though, the most important judgment of God here and it's the one that we rejoice at at Easter. There's just hints of it all through the passage. 
We've heard a few key commands um, repeated over and over. I'll just put them on the screen. Jesus over and over says, watch, flee. He speaks of distress. He talks about signs in the sky. And it's not about the cross. And yet, a couple of days later, as we keep keep reading Luke, on Thursday evening, Jesus would be in a garden on the Mount of Olives begging his disciples to watch and pray with him for the kingdom of God coming. And they kept falling asleep. And when Roman guards came to him to arrest him, they all fled his presence and left him to what was to come. Friday would be the greatest day of distress for the Son of God and a great day of distress for his followers who saw him hung up on a Roman cross as he faced the sins of the whole world. And as Jesus hung on the cross, we read the sky went black. The sky grew dark in daytime. There was a solar eclipse corresponding with the death of Jesus. As it's a symbol of the judgment of God in the Old Testament, the sins of the world were laid on Jesus. Everything I've done wrong, everything you've done wrong, Jesus took it for us on the cross so that we don't have to. And so we could go free. As Jesus came round the Mount of Olives on a donkey and Jerusalem came into view, he wept. Why did he weep? Because he knew he had come to take away the sins of the world to all who were willing to receive him. But he says, you are not willing, Jerusalem. You are not willing. Friends, you need to be willing for Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. You need to be willing. You need your stubborn heart to move from I just don't want to. I'm not even going to think about it, even though he's offering eternal life and salvation and everything. I'm not even going to think about it, to being willing to being saved. Do you want Jesus to be your saviour? If you don't, consider it. It, A lot, if if it's true, everything is, is in the balance here. It's the most important thing you'll ever think about in your life. If it's nonsense, it's nonsense. But if it's true, doesn't it deserve your strongest consideration? And as we come towards Friday and the death of Jesus for us, knowing that he faced God's anger against our sin for us so we could go free, let's make sure we thank him for it. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came and entered Jerusalem uh, as a very humble king to wear a crown of thorns and to be crowned on a cross uh, so that he could die for people to enter his kingdom. Thank you that he's the suffering servant who takes away our sins and the sins of all people who trust in him. Thank you that he's the son of man who rose from the dead and entered into heaven and now rules forever and will return again to judge the living and the dead. Please help us to trust in him, to think carefully through these things, and to desire him to be our saviour, and so call on him to be our saviour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.